0: Block 1 students, Professor Ryan here, ready to talk to you about vital signs. What are vital signs? They're a way to begin assessing physiological functions of the patient that you're caring for. Uh, We first obtain a baseline and continue to monitor to detect possible changes in your patient. Uh, each vital sign has an acceptable range or limit that we will discuss further in this lecture, and that vital signs are affected by many factors. So, Like I was saying, it's important to obtain a baseline for each person, meaning that if you have a person who exercises regularly, their heart rate might be lower than the normal limit, but that is normal for them so we just want to make sure that we are not jumping to conclusions and freaking out that they have a low heart rate but that we're always correlating clinically. You're going to see me well not see but you're going to hear me say that a lot to correlate clinically. Final signs are also a great way to tell you if something's going wrong meaning if your patient's oxygenation starts to dip or their blood pressure is trending lower than it normally is that that might indicate a problem. So we're talking about vital signs um, are affected by different factors, meaning uh, sleep and activity. Um, patients or not patients, but people in general, um, their vital signs tend to slow down uh, while they're sleeping because there's not a lot of of activity or need for a high heart rate when you're sleeping. Uh, Activity like exercise um, that can increase heart rate and respiratory rate as well. Uh, Certain drugs can increase or decrease depending on what the drug is. And emotions, pain, and different types of illness also affect vital signs as well. Uh, Pain, um, heart rate, and blood pressure can go up as well as respiratory rate. And then illness, it depends on what's going on. Um, if your patient has an infection, the temperature might rise, you know, if they're trying to fight off that infection, as well as their blood pressure might start to drop. Um, that's something that we, called sepsis, and we'll we'll get more into that, but just so you know that that does affect vital signs, those things do affect vital signs differently. All right. So what are vital signs? so temperature heart rate or pulse blood pressure respiratory rate and oxygen saturation and pain is often often referred to as the sixth vital sign so it is important but not necessarily what we're going to focus on in this lecture you're going to have an entire other pain lecture so temperature is um, the degrees of how hot the body is how hot the patient's body is Uh, It's measured in degrees Celsius or degrees Fahrenheit, and we'll talk about how to obtain a temperature a little bit later in this lecture. Uh, Heart rate and pulse is abbreviated HR for heart rate. Uh, Blood pressure, we can shorten that to BP, and then you'll see that SBP and DBP is for systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And again, we'll talk more about that. Uh, Respiratory rate is RR. And then oxygen saturation is O2 sat. Um, I hear a lot of students and and even other fellow nurses say stat. Um, so you want to make sure that you're saying it correctly. So it's O2 sat saturation. We're not going to focus a ton on oxygen saturation in this PowerPoint, so I'm going to give you all the information right now. Um, oxygen saturation is the fraction of oxygen oxygen saturated hemoglobin relative to the total hemoglobin in the blood. Uh, the normal range depends on your facility. You're going to hear me say that a lot as well, but generally speaking um, from 95% to 100% is normal for oxygen saturation. Now that could be dependent on your patient's other comorbidities or medical history for example patients with COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease their oxygen saturations could be in the high 80s and that's okay for them so again it all depends on your patient's baseline and their other medical history as well and the oxygen saturation is may not be something that you see very much in the long-term care facility uh, so just be aware of that. How often should we be taking vital signs? So, there are a few different factors of how often to take vital signs. Uh, the first one is physician or healthcare provider order. Um, depending on what unit you're on, or what facility you are at, or what the patient has had done, um, depends on how often you should take vital signs. Um, you'll see on the right hand side the general guidelines. Um, Usually in the hospital, they're taken minimally every eight hours. That's what QH, Q8H means, every eight hours. Now it depends on where you are. That's usually med surge floors. If you're on a telemetry floor, it's every usually it's every four hours. So Q4 hours. Critical care like ICU, um, they could be taken as frequently as every hour. And then post procedure, meaning if your patient just had surgery or some kind of sedated procedure. Um, usually they take vital signs every fifteen minutes for an hour, every thirty minutes for an hour, and then every hour for four hours. So it just depends. Uh, it also is based on nursing judgment. So if you went in to see your patient and they were awake and alert and looking at you and responding, and everything seemed normal for that patient, and then you come back an hour later and the patient's really sleepy and they're they just look very drowsy they're very hard to wake up the first thing i'd want to do is get a set of vitals to see if something has changed because that patient condition has changed from the last time i've been in the room and then facility standards um, like I was saying with the general guidelines, it depends on what floor you're on, it depends on what type of patient population you are caring for. Um, oncology patients might have a different set of standards than uh, post-transplant patients, uh, it just depends. In the skilled nursing facility or long-term care, um, it, uh, like I said, it depends on what, what unit you're, you are in. Um, if it's a post-acute, they might be taking vitals once a day. If it is um, a residential wing like the patients just they live there but they just they need you know some more assistance with their ADLs or they need some help managing their medication they might take them weekly to monthly it just depends on the facility. Um, some other times when you'd want to assess vital signs uh, making sure that you, Take a set of vital signs upon admission to a healthcare facility that creates your baseline. Uh, when there's a change in patient condition, like we talked about, before and after surgical or invasive procedures, um, depending on their condition, potentially after ambulation to see how they tolerated ambulation. Definitely after your patient falls because. As much as we'd like it to be a never event, sometimes it does happen. So You want to make sure that you get a, a baseline set of vitals after that fall to see if anything is um, completely different than what their normal is. If your patient complains of dizziness or a change in the way they feel, that could be correlating to a drop in blood pressure or a raise in blood pressure. Just It depends on the patient. Uh, before, during, and after blood administration. That's something you'll learn in block four. and Then before administration of medications uh, related to respiratory and cardiac function. You'll get this more in your farm lecture, but you want to make sure that if you're going to give a medication that the intent of that medication is to lower the heart rate, you want to make sure that you take their heart rate before you give that because if their heart rate is already too low and you're going to give that medication to lower it even further, that could create a serious problem. Welcome to the temperature lecture. So Body temperature is the degree of heat maintained by the body. This is calculated in Fahrenheit or Celsius. You'll see more and more that facilities are using Celsius these days. The thermoregulatory center of the body is located in the hypothalamus of the brain. Heat is used for energy by cells and heat production must be equal to heat loss to maintain temperature, meaning that there can be serious issues for a patient if they are In a very cold environment and the body cannot keep up with heat production and that results in hypothermia and on the opposite spectrum if a patient's body temperature is not able to keep the body cool enough I mean we live in Arizona this is exactly what happens when we go outside when it's 104 degrees outside right now if we stay outside too long that we will get heat stroke if we don't maintain our body temperature there is a also a difference between core temperature versus surface temperature core temperature being more accurate of a reading and then temperature also varies on different factors such as age biological sex physical activity state of health and environmental temperatures like we were talking about with hypo and hyperthermia and then also circadian rhythms So, these are those variables we were just discussing. So, in relation to circadian rhythms, uh, temperature is lower in the morning because the body is having less activity during sleep. Exercise can increase temperature and metabolism. So, if you want to take a patient's temperature, um, try and wait at least one hour after vigorous exercise if that is something that they do. Um, Older adults are at risk for harm from extremes of temperatures due to impaired thermoregulatory responses. Older adults also lose some thermoregulatory control with aging, so body temperature in older adults may be lower than the average adult temperature. Women tend to experience more fluctuations in body temperature than men do, probably as a result of changes in hormones. During ovulation, women can experience up to a one degree Fahrenheit increase in body temperature from their baseline. Also, um, eating and drinking. So, if your patient just had a gulp of hot coffee, it's not a great time to take their temperature because that might be inaccurate because they just had a hot liquid in their mouth. So, if you can, you need to wait at least 20 to 30 minutes after eating or drinking hot or cold beverages or food to obtain an accurate temperature. So what is a normal temperature? That's gonna be around 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius. Now hyperthermia is defined as greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.8 Celsius. And hypothermia is lower than 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius. Now most when you guys start looking through charts more more often than not you're going to see a physician's order that says to treat a fever over 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius because that is the universal cutoff for a fever is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius. Because most fevers, unless extremely high, like over 104 degrees Fahrenheit, are not usually harmful. They're the body's natural way of killing foreign invaders and a normal immune response reaction. If a fever is above 106 degrees Fahrenheit, this is called hyperpyrexia and is considered a medical emergency. So in that instance, we would be giving cooled IV fluids and putting cooling blankets around the patient to combat that high fever, hypothermia is one of the uh, causes of sudden cardiac death. If you're getting an off baseline reading, make sure you double check that and that you're looking at your patient and correlating clinically. And then also make sure to check with a core temperature to correlate that reading that you're getting. Ways that we would heat up a patient are. Um, Wrapping them in heated blankets. There's something called a bear hugger that they use in emergency departments to heat somebody up uh, quickly. We can also give them uh, warmed IV fluids, and also um, instilling warm fluid into the bladder uh, via a catheter. So, how do we measure a patient's body temperature? So. These are the different types of ways that we can obtain a temperature from a patient. We talked about the surface versus core temperatures and and these are the types of temperatures we can take a surface versus core. So axillary, oral, temporal, and tympanic are all surface temperatures and then core temperatures are rectal and there is a special type of urinary catheter that has a thermometer probe. that sits in the bladder itself. Uh, Oral obviously is the most common. Um, Temporal artery thermometers measure the body temperature by capturing the heat emitted by the skin over the temporal artery. This method is accurate as long as the operator uses the correct technique from the manufacturer and the device is clean. So Always make sure that you're looking at how you are supposed to be using this piece of equipment to get an accurate reading. Tympanic membrane thermometers use infrared sensors to detect heat given off by the tympanic membrane, reflecting the temperature of the blood flowing in the carotid artery. Studies are conflicted on the accuracy of this method. So This is mostly used in children when it, it's very difficult to get an axillary temp on a, on a child. Um, same thing with an oral. You don't want to be shoving something in a kid's mouth that's flailing and is, and is upset. So. That's mostly used in the pediatric realm. Uh, axillary readings are affected by ambient temperature, local blood flow, placement of the probe, and closure of the axillary cavity. Meaning, if you can't get your patient to close their, put their arm next to their body, like if the, your patient's very uh, cachectic or emaciated, they're, if they're very skinny, they may not have that good seal for you to get a good axillary reading. Uh, so this reading should only be used when oral and rectal roots are unavailable. Rectal is the most accurate, although not the most widely used. You don't want to take a rectal temperature on a patient with heart problems. This could stimulate the vagus nerve and potentially induce a low heart rate. Um, A lot of patients, when they stimulate the vagus nerve, they have this uh, fainting reaction, this syncopal episode. That Syncope is the fancy medical term for fainting. Um, so, you want to make sure that if your patient has a history of cardiac issues, you don't necessarily go right to a rectal temperature. Uh, patients also with diarrhea um, or a low platelet count because this could cause uncontrolled bleeding. And we'll talk more about platelets and what they do, but uh, you might actually like puncture something by taking an rectal temperature, and if they can't form a clot, then that could be an issue. And then patients with active diarrhea you don't want to be sticking anything up there anyway since these ways vary in their act their accuracy excuse me um, you want to make sure that you're using the same method of obtaining a temperature to get that baseline reading and monitor that trend for the patient so if if they've been having oral temperatures you want to take an oral temperature if they've been having rectal temperatures you want to take a rectal temperature unless it's contraindicated to maintain that accuracy and be able to monitor that trend accurately as well so this these are the different types of thermometers that you might see um, to take an accurate tympanic temperature for an adult patient, you want to be sure to pull the pinna of the ear up and back. Uh, the pinna just means it's that, the outside part of the ear that you can, you can touch. And then contraindications for tympanic temperature readings are copious amounts of earwax, meaning that you won't be able, you just won't be able to get an accurate reading, or ear drainage or an obvious infection of the ear. Um, The oral and rectal thermometers actually look exactly the same, but you will notice that the red, excuse me, the rectal thermometers have a red top on them to distinguish them from the oral thermometers because we don't want to be putting something in the mouth that we had previously put in the anus. So the oral temperature, the most common temperature that you'll probably be taking, um, you want to make sure that when you put this in the patient's mouth, that it is going underneath the tongue, on down on the side of the mouth as well. That you're not just kind of placing it in the patient's mouth because that, then that won't be accurate. Um, you want to make sure that your patient's cooperative. You don't want to be sticking something in the mouth of a combative patient, again, or infants, or an unconscious patient. Another contraindication for oral temperatures is a patient receiving oxygen over six liters a minute. So, if you have a patient that requires more than six liters, up to six liters we can do as a nasal cannula. So, that's little prongs that go inside the patient's nose. So, after six liters, we bump them up to a, a mask. So, that mask is going to be over their mouth. And that actually dries out the, the mucous membranes of the mouth and that can alter the, the temperature of the mouth. The rectal temperature is the most accurate, however, it is invasive and sometimes extremely uncomfortable for the patient. Um, so Again, we want to make sure that we are not um, taking a rectal temperature of a patient with diarrhea because the presence of stool can cause inaccuracy in the reading. Um, someone that is uncooperative, um, if they cannot follow directions and you know get into that sideline position, so that it's easier for you to um, take this temperature. This this is not the best way to do a temperature. Uh, we talked about heart disease already, stimulating that vagus nerve nerve and inducing syncope. And then rectal surgery or any surgery in the um, you know the anal canal, um, placing something in there could tear um, an anastomosis or cause bleeding which is something you don't want especially right after surgery Um, so how to take a rectal temperature first of all don't be stingy with the lube lube up that thermometer it's it's gonna make for an easier insertion and that makes everybody happy especially the patient uh, make sure that they are in a sideline position, uh, that you are wearing gloves because the picture that is on your slide is a person that is not wearing gloves, and that you're also maintaining privacy for your patient. Uh, make sure that you insert the thermometer approximately one and a half inches and then wait for your reading. So make sure you review this video and come to your virtual hangout with any. Uh, questions that you have. Thank you. Welcome to your audio lecture on heart rate and pulse. Pulses result from a wave of blood being pumped into arterial circulation by the contraction of the left ventricle. It is measured in beats per minute or BPM this is the number of contractions of the heart per minute and normal is 60 to 100 beats per minute now just because normal means 60 to 100 doesn't mean that if your patient has a heart rate of 58 that we're going to freak out right so if your patient has a heart rate of 58 that means they are bradycardic that just means that their heart rate is a little bit slower and What are we going to do if our patient's heart rate is 58? Because that's technically out of normal range. We will, this is where I would have you say with me, correlate clinically. Make sure you look at your patient. Are they dizzy? Do they, are they, do they have pallor? Are they pale? Do they look like they're not getting enough circulation to their brain? If none of that is going on, then you'd ask, hey, Mrs. Patient, do you usually have a lower heart rate? So, we're going to establish that baseline again. And same thing if your patient has a heart rate of 105. We're not going to freak out. We're going to correlate clinically, okay? So, I talked about this a little bit in the previous slide, but a heart rate less than 60 beats per minute is called bradycardia. And then a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute is defined as tachycardia. So, if your patient has a heart rate of 115, you would say that patient is tachycardic. Okay. So we're also looking at the rate of your patient's uh, pulse. Is it regular or irregular? Irregular is when beats are not evenly spaced or when beats are skipped. So you want to make sure when you're palpating a pulse, when you're when you're putting your hands on your patient to feel for a pulse, that you're counting out. Do these do these march out, or are they funky and are they all over the place? Because that's your irregular irregularity. A uh, rhythm is something that is determined by a cardiac monitor. So you guys will get this more in block four. But um, you guys have all seen that first slide that I had. That is an an ECG or an electrocardiogram. So that's looking at the electrical activity of the heart in the um, Electrical activities. So don't worry about reading that right now. You don't have to worry about the rhythm until block four. So just know: is your patient bradycardic, um, tachycardic? Is their rate is it regular? Is it irregular? And then the next thing we're going to look at is what is the quality of their pulse? Is it Bounding is it thready? Is it normal? Is it faint? Is it weak? Um, so quality is also referred to as amplitude. Um, this can be found in your fundamentals book on table twenty-five four. Um, so normal or bounding is easy to feel. Weak or thready is very hard to feel. Um, depending on where you, where your, what facility you are at, um, they might use a three or four point scale for measuring the quality of a pulse so this is also described in the handout that's posted on canvas that goes along with uh, vital signs and assessment so if you have a patient and you're trying to palpate their pulse and you can't find it we don't freak out the next step we're going to take is um, looking sorry excuse me using an ultrasound doppler meaning it's it's just a little device that you you put some uh, Lubricating jelly on your patient's uh, wrist. If we're going to look at this picture right here, and you'd put this device on the patient's wrist, and it uses ultrasound to look for that wave amplification, and it will come out as a as a sound. Like if you've ever you know seen a movie where somebody's pregnant and they do an ultrasound of their heart, and you hear that whoosh 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 of the baby's heart. That's exactly what the um, the Doppler will sound like as well. These are all the different pulse points that are palpable on the body. Um, the peripheral pulses are brachial, radial, which are both in the upper extremities, popliteal, posterior tibial, and dorsalis pedis are in the legs. So those are your peripheral pulses. Um, your core pulses are your carotid and your femoral. So your carotid are in your neck and the femoral are in your groin. So if your patient is coding, if they don't ha- if they don't have a pulse, if they're pulseless and we're doing CPR, the pulse points we're going to check are going to be those core pulse points because we mostly the carotid. We want to make sure that the brain is getting perfused. So this is just a slide that illustrates the difference between core and peripheral pulse points. This is a diagram showing the common location of the pulses that I just spoke about in the previous slide. Um, The one thing to take away from this is that you want to make sure that when you're palpating a carotid pulse, that you are only doing that one at a time. So You're going to check the right side and then check the left side because you don't want to be palpating both the carotid pulses at the same time because that can decrease blood flow to the brain otherwise you would want to check the both radial arteries at the same time to make sure that you are you're checking both of them against each other making sure that they are both the same quality and amplitude so how do we obtain a heart rate so we can palpate pulses at designated points on the patient and look at our watch and count, look at the watch, the second hand for a full minute and count those heartbeats, and that will be your beats per minute heart rate. You can use an electronic, electronic vitals machine, however, we always want to make sure that we can do something in person and not rely on machines because machines can malfunction. You also can look at a cardiac monitor that is those squiggly lines I was talking about before? Um, that will show you your heart rate as well. However, the apical pulse is the most accurate. This is um, auscultating the number of heartbeats at the apex of the heart. So, how you would get there is the the apex of the heart is located at the fifth intercostal space at the midclavicular line. You're going to listen with your stethoscope. This is not a pulse that you would palpate. And Then you would also count this for one full minute. This is going to be part of your head-to-toe checkoff. This is a skill that you'll be showing us that you know how to do. So Make sure that you are comfortable in locating the apex of the heart because that's where you're going to hear the apical pulse the best at that fifth intercostal space mid-clavicular line. If you're not going to take an apical pulse for whatever reason you can palpate a peripheral pulse or uh, a central core pulse as well um, by palpating and placing the first two or three fingers of one hand against that artery. Uh, make sure that you're not touching your thumb to the patient because you do have a, a tiny um, artery in your thumb that can um, conf- you can confuse the pulse in your thumb with the pulse of the patient. Um, You want to count for one full minute to listen for those heartbeats, uh, or you can count for 30 seconds and multiply times two, that's going to be your beats per minute. However, if you note that the pulse is irregular, you should always count for a full minute because that's going to give you the most accurate beats per minute. Because if, you're, if it's irregular, that means there's a few beats that are closer together and a few beats that are farther away. So you want to kind of take the average of that. There are a lot of factors that can create um, variations in heart rate. Uh, in a healthy adult, the heart rate should be the same as the peripheral pulse. There shouldn't be a difference between the, pal- the pulse you're palpating and the pulse that you're hearing, like the apical pulse. Women have a slightly higher pulse rate than men. Um, Exercise can create a high heart rate but the better shape that one is in the faster it returns to normal and then like I was telling you before um, athletes um, can have a lower resting heart rate so their heart rate their resting heart rate might be in the 50s and that's okay because that's normal for them. If your patient has a fever this can increase the heart rate as well. Um, it's been shown that a fever can increase um, for every degree elevation in Fahrenheit. That can increase the heart rate 10 beats per minute as well. Uh, sympathetic nervous system stimulation by uh, you know pain, anxiety, fever, stress, or caffeine. Uh, that can make the heart rate go higher. Have your patient be tachycardic. And then parasympathetic stimulation, so stimulation of the vagus nerve that induces bradycardia, as well. We were talk- we've talked about that already. That uh, syncopal episode that might happen with the stimulation of the vagus nerve, and then sepsis um, or infection in the blood uh, that can cause tachycardia as well. So different disease processes can, um, you know, lower or raise the heart rate depending on what the action of that disease process is on the body. So make sure you review this video and then come to the virtual review with any questions that you have. Thank you. Welcome to your respiratory rate lecture. Respirations are the active movement in and passive movement out of the respiratory system. This is where the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide happens in the body. We inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide. There are two respiratory centers in the brain that I- that are the medulla and the pons. And um, carbon dioxide is our main drive for breathing. So the body senses. If there's too much carbon dioxide so it triggers the respiratory centers in the brain to increase the rate or depth of breathing to blow off that co2 so how do I get a respiratory rate so it's actually good practice not to tell the patient that you're counting their breaths because when you tell someone that you're counting their breaths then they become very aware of the fact that they're breathing and that might make them breathe faster and that can give you an inaccurate reading. So, A tip for counting respirations is like you can see in the background of this slide, the nurse is taking the patient's pulse, the radial pulse, and um, so what you would do is count the pulse for 30 seconds and remember just times that by two to get the beats per minute and then the next 30 seconds you would count the respiration so you would be watching the patient's chest to count the number of times that it rises and falls that is one respiration so if you count for 30 seconds then you'd multiply times two then you would get the breaths per minute or respiratory rate because it's always in minutes how many breaths per minute respiratory rate Um, again just like the pulse if your patient's breathing is irregular. You want to make sure that you are counting the respirations for one full minute. So the normal range for breaths per minute is 12 to 20. Uh, less than 12 breaths per minute is called bradypnea, meaning slow breathing, and then greater than 20 breaths per minute is called tachypnea. So if your patient was breathing 22 or 24 times a minute breaths per minute, their respiratory rate was 24, then you would say, my patient is tachypnic. And is that a medical emergency? No. Just like with the heart rate, if your patient's breathing is a little bit less than normal or a little greater than normal, we're not going to freak out. We're going to correlate clinically, look at your patient. However, if your patient your patient stops breathing, that is considered a medical emergency. That is when we would need to have a bag valve mask and take over breathing for them, call the code, that is, that is a medical emergency. They might need to be intubated, meaning that they would be putting, the physicians would be putting a tube down their throat to help them breathe, okay? Other than just the rate of respiration, we also as nurses uh, assess the depth, rhythm, and effort of respiration. Depth, meaning is your patient breathing shallow or are they taking big, deep breaths? What is the rhythm? Is it regular or irregular? And then effort as well. Um, do they look like they're struggling to breathe? Do they look like they're ma- it's a lot of work to breathe? Are they using accessory muscles, meaning the muscles in their neck to help move their chest to be able to take a breath. Um, dyspnea means that they are having difficulty or labored breathing, and then orthopnea means that they have the inability to breathe when horizontal. So, we're also assessing all of those things as well as the respiratory rate or breaths per minute. Oops. There are different factors that can affect a patient's respiratory rate. Um, exercise, the respiratory rate increases to meet the oxygen demand of the body as they're doing rigorous physical exercise. Um, respiratory and cardiac disease, brain injuries, and electrolyte acid-base imbalances can be um, higher rate or lower depending on the disease process. Um, if your patient has a brain injury, that they, they might injure the part of the brain that controls the breathing, so they might need help on a ventilator. As well. And then electrolyte and acid base imbalances, you'll learn more in your fluid and electrolyte lecture, but that has to do with your body can try to compensate for acid base imbalances by either retaining CO2 or blowing off CO2. Again, you'll get more of that in your fluid and electrolyte lecture. And then certain medications, um, opiates which are pain medications can decrease respiratory rate to the point where patients actually die from opiate overdoses, and then caffeine and stimulants can increase respiratory rate. Uh, Pain, anxiety, and infection usually increase respiratory rate. We're gonna dive back into oxygen saturation a little bit here. Um, So usually, You'll obtain oxygen saturation by placing a probe on onto a patient's finger, and that infrared light determines the concentration of oxygen in the arterial blood. Uh, so, common sites are the fingertip or nail bed, um, and then the presence of nail polish can actually alter the reading a little bit. Although they're getting better and better about these things um, these days, so it's no longer quite a concern. But uh, for some, for some devices, it does cause a, an incorrect reading. Um, other sites that you can obtain in oxygen saturation are the palm, sole, earlobes, or toes. I've also seen um, oxygen saturation uh, monitors. It's actually a little sticker that you can place over a patient's finger. Um, I've seen those on the earlobes, I've seen them on the toes as well. Um, I've also seen them strapped to a patient's forehead. Uh, that's not super accurate, but if your patient is demented and picking at their um, their cardiac monitor and their oxygen saturation uh, sticker on their finger, that might be the only place to obtain one. So like we were saying before, um, normal oxygen saturation is in the 90s, so 90 to 100, Um, optimal is 95 to 100. Um, Something that you would want to report to a healthcare provider or a physician is less than 90 percent, however remember I was talking about uh, patients with certain disease processes like COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, their new normal can be in the high eighties, and that's okay because that's just how their disease process works. So, um, and you'll get more of this in your respiratory lecture as well. But their drive for breathing becomes different than um, a person without COPD. Um, and then other respiratory disorders can um, cause variations in the oxygen saturation as well, like pneumonia. Um, people that smoke different types of infection um, you can also get you know usually it's bacterial or viral pneumonia you also can have fungal pneumonia um, also pulmonary fibrosis where the lung tissue just kind of solidifies and that's um, people with very severe pulmonary fibrosis end up needing uh, lung transplant some of the times uh, and also cystic fibrosis this is a, a disease where the passages of the lungs fill up with this hard mucus and it's very hard for patients to breathe as well and and have adequate uh, oxygenation as well. So make sure you review this lecture and any questions that you have please uh, bring them to the virtual review. Thank you! Hello again lovely Block Ones. Let's talk about blood pressure. First and foremost, let's talk about how to properly wear your stethoscope. So to take a manual blood pressure, you're going to need a blood pressure cuff, which is also referred to as a sphygmomanometer, and also your stethoscope. So, how to properly put the stethoscope buds in your ear? Make sure that the ear tubes are properly aligned with the ear canal for maximum comfort and sound transmission. Make sure that the earpieces are pointing towards your face and not towards the back of your head. Okay, so now that we know how to wear our stethoscope properly, let's get into blood pressure so blood pressure is the pressure or force exerted against the arterial walls for systolic blood pressure that's the degree of force when the heart is pumping or contracting and then diastolic blood pressure is the degree of force when the heart is relaxed this is a great indicator of overall cardiovascular health for your patients uh, it's measured in millimeters of mercury or mm capital hg and it's always recorded as systolic over diastolic so it's going to look like a fraction so now that we know what blood pressure is let's talk about normal ranges so this first col not column excuse me row you'll see on the slide here is normal ranges for blood pressure so systolic between 90 and 140 and diastolic between 60 and 90 those that's your normal range of i'm not going to freak out okay Uh, pre-hypertension, so hypertension meaning high tension or high blood pressure in this case, um, your systolic is going to be between 120 and 139 and diastolic between 80 and 90. So That is the range of my patient might be starting to have some uh, hypertension issues or we might need to start implementing some diet changes and some exercise as well so that we can try and get the, those ranges down to um, more normal, which is the gold standard is now 110 over 70. It used to be 120 over 80, so around there is the gold standard for blood pressure. And then hypertension is a blood pressure greater than 140 systolic over 90 diastolic. That's where we're going to start having a little bit more concern for the patient if they have a blood pressure of that or greater and we want to make sure that we're always correlating clinically. You're going to hear me say that a lot. Don't just take these numbers and start to freak out and treat the number. Always make sure that you are treating the patient as well, that you're going back and you're assessing your patient first and again some people their numbers are a little bit different you're going to want to look at what your patient's baseline is and what they what they have been doing because you'll sometimes you'll see patients who are admitted for a hypertensive crisis meaning their blood pressure is like 210 over 140 and they appear to be normal but they have this crazy high blood pressure that we need to treat and get down but they appear they are asymptomatic they appear to be normal so again always make sure that you're looking at the numbers and then looking at your patient as well and that goes into hypotension as well which is a blood pressure less than excuse me 90 over 60 so with hypotension we are we're concerned about patient losing consciousness and potential death so again you're always going to want to make sure that you look at your patient as well just because they have a blood pressure of 92 over 58 it doesn't mean that they are that we need to treat anything immediately always go and look at your patient as well and again if your patient is in great cardiovascular health and they have that low heart rate like 58 they might also have a lower blood pressure as well and that's okay so again this goes back to make sure that you're getting your a baseline reading on your patient and that you're always making sure and going back and assessing your patient Okay, so now that we know what a blood pressure is and what ranges are for blood pressures, how do we actually take one? So, there are two methods to taking blood pressures. We're going to focus mostly on the indirect method because that's the most commonly taken uh, method of blood pressures, and that includes your sphygmomanometer or your blood pressure cuff and your stethoscope. So, the sphygmomanometer, the picture on the right here, is a vinyl or cloth cuff with a pressure bulb and a regulating valve and a manometer. That is your your pressure gauge. So With that black bulb on the right hand side what you're going to do is is squeeze that in your hand a few times to increase the pressure in the cuff itself and then you see that little silver knob that's on the top of the bulb. That's how you release the pressure to listen to your Korotkoff sounds and assess a blood pressure and we'll talk more about that in other slides but those are the basics of the blood pressure cuff or sphygmomanometer. Then you also are using your stethoscope that's not pictured here to auscultate the di- systolic and diastolic sounds and pressures that are coming through the cuff and the manometer. Uh, the direct method of Obtaining blood pressures is using an arterial line. Um, This is only in the hospital. It's a very Invasive and a high acuity procedure. It's usually only in the ICUs, but certain other floors have them as well So it's a catheter that's actually threaded into the radial artery under sterile conditions And it's connected to an electronic monitoring system and displayed as a constant waveform so these patients get a constant blood pressure when we take an indirect blood pressure you're just getting the blood pressure of that moment because it does change very frequently so for your head to toe check off you will be Required to perform a two-step method for obtaining a manual blood pressure. So here are the steps for how to uh, take a two-step manual blood pressure. There's also a great video that's posted on Canvas that goes through how to take this as well. So the first step is you're going to palpate the brachial artery, meaning you're going to find that artery in the patient's upper arm. You're going to make you can feel it and make sure that it's that it's there, it's palpable. Place your Blood pressure cuff one to two inches above the artery and there is usually a patch that's sewn into the cuff that shows you put the artery this is where you put the cuff over the artery so make sure that you're looking at your your cuffs as well uh, palpate the artery with your non-dominant hand and inflate the cuff with your dominant hand uh, so meaning you want to have that black bulb in your or your dominant hand. Sorry, I almost said right because I'm right-handed. But in your dominant hand, uh, that way you can manipulate the um, the valve more easily with your dominant hand. And then note the millimeters of mercury um, when you can no longer palpate the pulse, and then deflate the cuff completely. So, step two after you wait at least 30 seconds, locate the brachial pulse with your stethoscope, so it should be in that same spot where you palpated the artery. Uh, inflate the cuff 30 millimeters of mercury above the number that you identified in step one, and then slowly deflate the cuff two to three millimeters of mercury per second and listen for the cord cough sounds. This is going to take some practice, it does take uh, at least a few attempts to be able to manipulate that releasing pressure valve to get it to where you can slowly deflate the cuff and you're not just turning it and it deflates all at once. So Make sure that you are practicing with this because it it is a little bit of a a dexterity um, practicing skill. So Korotkoff sounds are what you're actually hearing when you take a manual blood pressure. So there's sounds that are auscultated during manual indirect blood pressure. Um, the volume ranges, and the first sound that you hear correlates with systolic blood pressure. And then when all the sounds stop and there are, there's are silence, that means that's your diastolic blood pressure. So there are more sounds that are are within the listening range for your manual blood pressure, but the most important ones for you to focus on are the first sound that you hear because that's the, the systolic blood pressure and when the sounds stop because that's your diastolic blood pressure. Again, there's a great video of how to listen for these that on canvas. Okay. Another thing that we want to make sure that we're doing properly is putting the correct cuff size on the patient. Um, if you have a cuff that is too big for your patient, that could create a falsely low reading. And then, if your cuff is too small, that could create a falsely high reading. So, um, the rule of thumb is that if you're you're able to put two fingers under the cuff when you have it snugly on the patient, and that is a good fit, it should be. It shouldn't be too tight that we're cutting off circulation, but then it shouldn't also be falling off. Um, and note in the background picture here, there are different sizes. There are neonatal sizes for um, little babies that are that are fresh fresh out of the oven, and then there's also adult sizes and um, adult plus sizes as well. So make sure that you're looking at your cuff to to make sure that it is the proper size for your patient. And Also, that we're taking off sweatshirts or patients are rolling up their sleeves to a point where we are putting the cuff on skin. You want to make sure that you have the cuff on the patient's skin and that we're not listening over clothes because that could create a, uh, some false cord cough sounds for you and it also makes listening a lot more difficult. So There are a lot of factors that can affect blood pressure. Uh, Blood pressure changes from minute to minute. It actually changes from second to second, Um, so it's better to establish a pattern for your patient than rely on just one number and treat that one reading that you have. Uh, Men have slightly uh, higher blood pressure than women. Uh, After menopause, uh, women's usually increases because that has to do with a lot of hormone changes. Um, Exercise can have the overall effect of decreasing blood pressure because it helps strengthen the cardiovascular system. Uh, If your patient is in pain you can also see uh, an increase in blood pressure. Obesity usually causes an elevation in blood pressure and the reason is kind of interesting. Um, The more adipose tissue a person has, Uh, Adipose tissue is very vascular, so the more adipose tissue a person has, the more vasculature they create, so there's more capillaries and more vessels for all that blood to move through and so the heart has to pump harder, the pressure has to be higher to get through all of that vasculature. Um, higher sodium in a person's diet, um, equals higher blood pressure because of retained fluid. Uh, fluid likes to follow salt. Water follows salt. You'll get that more in your heart failure lecture. But, um, just know that diet can affect blood pressure. And then more than three alcoholic drinks a day can also raise blood pressure. Uh, that's what ETOH stands for. You'll see that abbreviated a lot. That stands for alcohol. Um, and then also certain drugs and medication um, that we can give to uh, raise or lower blood pressure depends on what we want to happen for the patient. And then some patients just get nervous around nurses or doctors or other healthcare professionals, and that's called white coat syndrome when their blood pressure is falsely elevated when they go to a doctor's visit or they come to the hospital. So Sometimes, what healthcare providers will do is they'll tell that patient to take their blood pressure when they're at home and keep a log so that they can bring that to the visit and show the provider that I don't have high blood pressure when I'm at home, I just have this white coat syndrome. So, now that we've talked about taking a regular blood pressure, we're going to talk about orthostatic blood pressures. So, what the heck does that mean? Um, it's also called postural hypotension. Meaning that when a person sits or stands, or when they have a rapid change in positioning, that drops their blood pressure and can make them very dizzy or pass out. So it's technically defined as a decrease of 20 millimeters of mercury in systolic blood pressure or 10 millimeters of mercury for diastolic blood pressure within three minutes of standing after sitting or laying down. So, what could be the cause of? orthostatic hypotension. So It's it's really varied what the causes might be. Um, It might be a side effect of some medication, especially uh, drugs that affect the cardiac system or drugs that affect blood pressure directly. Uh, It might be caused by dehydration, uh, meaning you don't have enough volume in your vascular space, you're dehydrated, or actual blood loss, from trauma or surgery or you know some other cause like that Um, aging it is more common in older adults and then certain neurological and endocrine disorders as well this also might be acute or chronic uh, meaning it acute meaning that it's short-lived or chronic meaning that the patient lives has lived with it for years Um, it also might be symptomatic or asymptomatic meaning If your patient is symptomatic then they exhibit symptoms like they would get dizzy or potentially pass out or asymptomatic meaning they have no symptoms that their blood pressure will show a drop but however they don't have any symptoms so now that we've talked about what is an orthostatic blood pressure or postural hypotension so how do I take it So the first thing you're going to do is have your patient lay down in the supine position for three to ten minutes and take a blood pressure. Then you're going to sit your patient on the edge of the bed and after one to three minutes, take a blood pressure. If the patient feels dizzy or lightheaded, you stop taking orthostatics and have the patient lay back down because that means they're obviously symptomatic. And that could you don't want to you don't want to continue with this further because then that might create more problems like the patient falling or passing out. If your patient can tolerate it, then have them stand and wait two to three minutes and take another blood pressure. And refer to that previous slide for um, if your patient is orthostatic positive or orthostatic negative. So that's how we usually refer to it in a facility. Um, if you take a set of orthostatics, meaning you take these three blood pressures, laying down, sitting, and then standing. Um, if they do not have a significant drop, then they they have negative orthostatics. However, if your patient does drop or they become symptomatic, we would refer to that as positive orthostatic blood pressures. So there are several things we can do to combat orthostatic hypotension. We can have the patient sit for a few minutes before standing. So. Uh, Anytime you have an older patient that you're getting out of bed to go to the bathroom or have them ambulate for whatever reason, you can have them sit at the edge of the bed or what we call dangle for a few minutes um, to make sure that they're not getting dizzy and that they don't get up too fast and plop right down on the floor. Uh, Make sure that your patients have proper hydration and then we can administer antihypertensives, meaning medications that affect high blood pressure at bedtime so that they're not getting this compounded effect of lowering blood pressure like right in the morning when they're supposed to be up and doing things. We can give it to them at night if it's okay with the provider uh, to kind of try and combat that. Um, There are also medications we can give for orthostatic hypotension. Uh, Mostly what we see is midadrine and that helps to vasoconstrict uh, the vessels to increase the blood pressure. Mostly we're trying to get blood pressure down, but we can give medication to help raise it as well. So make sure you review this video and um, have your questions at the virtual lecture. Thank you.